you learn. I couldn't spell scope three, category 11, three years ago. And in no way am I trying to say, by the way, that anybody can just come in and do this and you don't need experts and you don't need SMEs. You absolutely need some experts in SMEs. There's a gentleman on my team that has the biggest science brain on the planet relative to climate. I depend on him. But I don't think everybody in the space has to have it. And what we're finding, Adele, and I know a lot of our peers out there are experiencing the same, you need multiple different kinds of disciplines to advance in this space. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the final episode of the ESG Compliance Podcast. And we have truly saved the best for last. And we're going to talk to Paige Motes. I've known Paige, not forever, but for a fair amount of time. She's been a part of the compliance community, and now she's a part of the ESG community. So Paige, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, Tom, I'm delighted. Thanks again. Paige, could you tell us your professional background? Yeah, so I actually started in sales. I started at Dell back in the 90s when it was booming. And then I thought I needed a little piece of the internet startup bubble that did not start out so well for me. And I ended up making my way through a variety of different sales roles until in 2003, right after I had my first son, I got a taste of ethics and compliance when I went to work at LRM. Real change for me in the trajectory of the career, not because I wasn't still in sales and consulting, but because I was for the very first time focused on purpose-driven activities and working with organizations to do the right thing. And I was really excited about that. It energized me. And after a number of years in that role, I actually was asked by a former LRN customer, hey, you think it's so easy, come try to do it at Dell. So I did, thinking it was easy and it was not. And as all of you ethics and compliance professionals know, it's really hard. So I spent about a decade inside Dell within ethics and compliance as practitioner, advancing programs, and had an opportunity about three years ago to move my strategic work from ethics and compliance into the area of sustainability. And so I started out from a strategy standpoint there, and then about a year ago, got to take over the lead global role. So very excited, but it's a little bit of a circuitous route. So it's somewhat unusual to go from the consulting world in-house. We typically see people go the other direction. What were maybe two or three of the biggest surprises for you when you went in-house from LRN? The first most interesting surprise, and it was not even just from the LRN experience, it was just previously all those years in sales, is that the company really doesn't spend all of their time thinking about you, the vendor. You are one small aspect of their total thinking on a daily basis. And as much as I thought they had to talk to me all the time, and it was super duper duper important. As a practitioner, you're juggling a thousand different things on a daily basis. And it's when and if that supplier or vendor relationship or insights are needed is when you get pulled in. And that was a real sea change when I had never had a career doing in-house work before. So that was the most interesting. And then it was also the speed within the companies, how fast things changed in some cases. And I know not every company is that way, but Dell was 
very dynamic is very dynamic, a lot of speed, a lot of change. It was a different kind of perspective for me to try to work in such a very large global company and having to make decisions and move at a very quick pace. Could you talk about some of the roles you had in Dell before you took your current role? Yeah. So before I came into the sustainability organization, I spent, like I said, a decade from 2009 to 2019 in ethics and compliance. That's in the legal department at Dell. And I held a lot of different, I would say, scopes within that ethics and compliance space. Started out really helping them revamp their education program, you know, their compliance training and ethics training then migrated to expanding scope over purview of the code of conduct and developing the next levels of the code, expanded into management of the ethics hotline and all of the inquiries and allegations that come through, all the reporting and analytics that go to the board and other key stakeholders. So it just kept growing and growing from there. And I would say towards the end, a big part of the role that I held was really thinking about the next level of digital transformation in the ethics and compliance space and really using technology to help us be smarter, be more nimble. That's work that even to this day, the ethics and compliance organization in Dell is really taking to the next level. So kind of similar type of roles, but just expanding purview year over year. You mentioned when you initially went to LRN, you bumped under the concept of doing business with purpose. Did you see that when you went to Dell and How did that really play out in the compliance function you were in? It was such a light bulb moment for me when I went to work at LRN. And I know that they are not the only company that's this way. But for me to be able to use my skills and talents to help advance goodness in the world, whatever that version of goodness is, was incredibly important to me, especially at the time frame I went to go work there where there were a variety of very large corporate entities in America and beyond that were not doing the right thing and were crashing and burning left and right. I made a decision right then and there that I would never again hold a job that was not directly connected and not just, you know, in a, an aspirational way, like an actual job that was directly connected to in some form or fashion doing good in the world. It had to have a social impact oriented feel to it and an actual job that advanced and progressed in that area. I didn't call it social impact at the time, but certainly that's what I realized is that purpose and that connection to how business can work with purpose, with ethics, with integrity, with helping your community, helping your neighbor, all of those feelings, I decided I would never again hold a job that wasn't in that realm. And I haven't so far. So I've been happy to say I've continued in that journey. Dell has had several different types of owner structures while you've been there. Has it been able to maintain that culture of purpose throughout those different ownership structures? It has. And in fact, it was one of the things that impressed me so much. When I first started at Dell, we were a publicly traded company. And then not all that long after the fact, we went private and then again went public a number of years later. Not a single, and I really mean this, we didn't get any pushback in ethics and compliance to dial back our programs when we went private. In fact, I was fully expecting I would need to bring a business case to bear why we shouldn't because eventually we'd go public again and we can't recreate all of that structure. That wasn't even a question that came up. And I was incredibly proud that that wasn't even a factor. Uh, In fact, we even 
kind of continued to do some even more innovative work during that time. You know, I don't know if it's all attributed to this, but I would dare say that one of the things that helps definitely at Dell is when you have a founder CEO with his name on every door, every building, every package, every contract, everything you have, this is about his legacy too. He cares deeply about doing things the right way. And that helps. There are most companies out there that don't have the name of the CEO with the name on the door have exactly the same approach, but it definitely is helpful to be able to lean in and know that Michael Dell himself really cares because that's his name. He founded this company and is really deeply entrenched in this purpose-oriented work. I've heard colleagues who worked for you tell me that, yeah, Michael called me or something like that. Did he really take that level of involvement where he would call someone on the compliance team with an appropriate or relevant question? 100%. Michael has been known for years. I'm not trying to speak out of school about him, but I will brag a little bit. He has always been very hands-on and taking interest in team members, taking interest in issues and conversations and likes to, you know, sometimes just show up and be a part of it and see him walking down the hall when I was in sales in the 1990s with a headphone plug-in and he would just come and sit next to a salesperson and plug in and say, hey, can I help with the sale? Like he really gets involved. I know that Michael was very connected whenever I was in ethics and compliance, but yeah, I mean, he definitely will often make a personal appearance or reach out personally. And I I love that about him. I'd like to turn now to your move to the head of global sustainability. What led to that move? And then we can maybe take a little bit deeper dive into what that role entails so far. Yeah. I mean, I think I had been with the ethics and compliance office for a decade. I am not an attorney by training. And so, you know, when you work in the legal department, there are some limits on what you can do in the legal department if you're not an attorney. So I started to contemplate where could I spread my wings? Where could I use my transferable skills, but also be challenged and stay within that purpose space? And so sustainability was a place I already was doing a lot of partnering work. When you're in the ethics office, you often work in the topics of human rights or some of the risks across other parts of our business. I work deeply with our product regulatory team. So there were places in the spaces of sustainability where I already had a hand. And I just really reached out to the gentleman, David Lear, that used to have my role and said, hey, you know, I'd love to start cultivating a deeper relationship around where I'd like to go. And I started deepening those connections. And when the time came for the organization to build out a strategy role, it worked out for me. That's really how I came over there. And it really A lot of people assume that just because you're in one aspect of the organization and you're deeply entrenched there, that you don't A, have transferable skills, or B, there's not sister functions that very much are aligned to the work you already do, but they can add a new level of challenge. And that's really what the sustainability role uh, and the sustainability opportunity gave to me. So what is the role of sustainability at Dell? So ESG as a broader spectrum encompasses all aspects of E and S and G. But the way we define the sustainability role and purview at our company is around all things environmental and then an aspect of social, really the human rights piece. And then obviously I'm connected into some of the G's, but it's mostly the E and a portion of the S. 
human capital management, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all of that work rolls up through a different organizational structure, but they are hand in glove in partnership across ESG. But I don't handle, for example, giving and philanthropy. I don't handle diversity, equity, inclusion. It's mostly all the environmental spaces with a specific focus on climate, circular economy, and then, of course, out of the S, broad Pandel human rights focus. You mentioned transferable skills. What are some of the skills you learned or developed in compliance that you think really lend itself to a sustainability or even broader ESG role? There are two really clear spaces for me that I think the ethics and compliance practitioners, risk practitioners, et cetera, have that I also developed that I think are very transferable. One of them is actually three. One of them is we know how to deal with ambiguity, especially in the ethics side. Not everything is so cut and dry in the ethics side. In fact, we're often arguing you can't have a rule for everything. You've got to have a set of values and a cultural underpinning to help you make decisions when it's not so black and white. I think that's very transferable because in the area of sustainability, not everything's regulated. Sometimes the customers just want you to do something different. You've got to lean in and understand what works. The other thing I think that's really important is that ethics and compliance professionals are the ultimate dot connectors. You're working on a global scale. You're having to understand all aspects of the company and the business. You have to understand the balance between what the business needs for business acceleration and growth. And then those factors like regulation that are going to have to be factored in as you think about processes. And then you also have to be able to what I call exert authority without having formal authority, right? You have to be able to influence without formal authority, bring people along at a vision, sometimes that feels uncomfortable to them and really help them figure out how to do that. And I would say sustainability is very much the same. Some of my organization really shapes the strategy around climate change work, the strategy around circular economy acceleration. But my team doesn't make the products for Dell, so I don't literally go and negotiate with suppliers for recycled material. Someone has to do that, and I've got to influence them, and my team has to influence them to do that. So that's, I think, an amazing transferable skill that ethics and compliance professionals practice every day. It's when I talk to many compliance professionals, they are very reluctant to move into ESG because of the E. They say things like, I'm not an environmental lawyer. I have no environmental experience. I really don't know the first thing about yep. environmental. <laughs> How do you answer that? You learn. I couldn't spell scope three, category 11, three years ago. And in no way am I trying to say, by the way, that anybody can just come in and do this and you don't need experts and you don't need SMEs. You absolutely need some experts in SMEs. There's a gentleman on my team that has the biggest science brain on the planet relative to climate. I depend on him, but I don't think everybody in the space has to have it. And what we're finding, Adele, and I know a lot of our peers out there are experiencing the same, you need multiple different kinds of disciplines to advance in this space. So what I bring to the table is understanding of Dell's business. I understand how to put together strategic plans. I can influence even leaders with business plans as to why this is a direction we need to go and what it means for the value to the company. As just some examples, you do not need to be an environmental SME, you know, with a degree from materials engineering to be able to go make that happen. What you do have to have is a desire to learn as much as possible around the world they live in. 
So I did a ton of deep learning around what are the factors that make up the greenhouse gas protocol? Who are the players in the frameworks out there? What does circularity mean? What are all the different pieces in the circular food chain? I mean, I had to educate myself and I'm many years in my career. It, there's a lot of great information out there, but I also really worked with our colleagues to better understand. One thing I think that does is that given my sales and ethics and compliance background, I could take sometimes these complex topics and explain them in a more simple way, where sometimes a deep SME is going to explain them from the lens of their SMEness, right? And so I think there are a lot of opportunities where someone who doesn't have that deep expertise, if they're willing to lean in and learn as much as makes sense, they are able to be an advocate and a business partner in a way that sometimes this me can't. Yeah, I think you need all of us doing that work. So you mentioned sc- scope three and the Securities and Exchange Commission have proposed rules for climate change risk reporting, including scope one, scope two, scope three. It sounds like you guys have been planning this for a long time. And so what I wanted to ask is, how do you think through what the government may require vis-a-vis what you may decide to disclose beyond that? Yeah, so I'm lucky that it did not take the SEC proposal for us to jump into action and think about scope three. Dell has been disclosing a variety of scope three categories for a number of years. I mean, our very first environmental external facing report was in 2002. And we have already back in 2019, we launched our next generation of goals. And we already had since 2014 or maybe earlier, a scope three use of sold product goal, which is one of the most complex ones for Dell, because that makes up over 65% of Dell's carbon footprint is the use of the products that we sell. So we were already playing in the highly complex scope three space for a very long time and disclosing that through CDP. For us, It is really more about refining those numbers, getting deeper into, for example, the supply chain. Right now, a large percentage of Dell's scope three supply chain category one numbers are really made up by our direct material suppliers. So we were already having lots of conversations with them and we already had a supply chain goal, but we're not gonna stop there. So where we really are going to be heading is deepening and broadening the level of data that we can get across the entire supply chain, which is highly complex. It's not just complex to Dell, but the concept of us doing this work is not new. We've been doing it a while. Now, there are some scope three categories that are hard. Employee commuting, hard, especially when for two years there was no employee commuting, (laughs) right? So some of those things that are probably not as percentage-wise material to our company, and I say material not with the financial M, but we still want to accelerate and get the right numbers for that too. That'll take a little longer, but we're already on the journey. A couple of times you've mentioned the term business case, and I was wondering, have you been able to, or has the sustainability team been able to use any of the results you've come up with to help improve business processes in any way? Yeah, I would not say it was necessarily just our team. What I really love about the setup that I can't claim I put together, I came into it in the role, is that there's a lot of cross-functional working groups, and there's even a pretty robust governance setup within the company that existed even pre 
ESG governance that existed for sustainability. What that did is it allowed us to already have senior executives and even working groups supporting them talking about kind of critical gaps or critical areas to accelerate. So we actually already had a way in which process improvement discussions were happening. Even then, also about a year and a half ago, launched a crowdsourcing tool called Eureka. It's actually connected to our our chief technology officer's mandate to allow any Dell employee to be able to say, I've got an idea. And we have a cross-functional team and even some budget money to actually kickstart their ideas. So I would not say we have any problem at all in uncovering gaps and deciding where we're going to make acceleration. Just trying to think of one that I could give it an ex- as an example on the spot. But I definitely can tell you that that is happening in a pretty robust way. I would say there's so many ideas. Sometimes we have to really table which ideas are coming through because we have such an activated global and all in on this topic employee base. But yeah, that is definitely an important part of this. Let me pick up on something you said and see if I can draw a line from a regulatory requirement to compliance to sustainability and ESG. And that is the Eureka tool that you mentioned. And you use the word speak up. So I want to say speak up culture. So it started yeah. out as the DOJ telling us we had to have a hotline, actually. Sarbanes-Oxley told us we had to have a hotline. But you guys have taken that much further. It's not simply a reporting line. It's a true speak up culture where not only do people have the opportunity to do so, you've encouraged them to do so, and you're accepting their ideas. So I wondered if yeah. you see that as a part of sustainability, because I certainly do, in the S part and things that we have done hopefully for 20 years now because of Sarbanes-Oxley, are really part of an ongoing dialogue around ESG. You totally hit the nail on the head. I think sometimes when I talk to former peers or you know folks within the ethics and compliance space and they feel like they have a hard time connecting to what they say this new area of ESG, you've been doing it for years. It's just called something different, right? It's not new. And in all honesty, Look at the work that you do each and every day. That helpline is a great example. That's been in place forever in many companies. We're used to monitoring, measuring, doing risk management, opportunity management, doing all of those processes and capabilities. And we're used to building cultures that enable that and take it beyond the rules to really being a differentiator that keeps people there, that brings new people in, that allows for maximum innovation, all of that's already in play. These are just pivoting those same types of concepts and maybe doing a few additional things just with other areas, right? I mean, OSHA is not new. There's all kinds of things that have been happening in those spaces that are already fantastic foundations to build upon and evolve. So absolutely right. So the Eureka tool concept you know, is really more about innovation, but it absolutely has a very similar approach to what you're talking about. You also mentioned the cross-functional teams you work with. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different corporate functions who you are working with on Dell's sustainability and overall ESG effort. Absolutely. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we decided about a year and a half ago to start putting a, a more formal ESG governance process into play. One of those elements is what we call the ESG Executive Steering Committee. That steering committee has many of the players you would expect to be on it. Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, Chief Privacy Officer, Chief Security Officer slash Information Security, 
head of corporate legal that works very closely with the board, head of investor relations, head of talent. You've got corporate accounting. You've got government affairs. I'm just naming a few, right? All the right people that have to look at both risk and opportunity, that have to think about how do we decide what we disclose, in what way do we disclose, how do we evolve processes for maximum disclosure, but most importantly, how do we make sure the people doing the actual programmatic work have representation because you can't talk about disclosing anything you don't have a program to back up. Like, so when you were talking about helplines, you can't have a helpline if you don't have processes and programs to actually encourage people to actually speak up. Education, engagement, maybe that's an ombudsman, whatever the thing is. I'm also represented on there as the head of sustainability. So is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So is the head of transforming lives, which is our giving program and philanthropy. You know, so those types of groups get together on a routine basis, and we are the governance structure for ESG for the company. Rachel, I'd like to ask you to maybe turn your gaze down the road a little bit to 2025 or beyond and where you see sustainability in a broader ESG corporate function going. Well, I wish I had a crystal ball. Wouldn't that be interesting? I think speaking from just sustainability, where I see companies going to, and I know that it's where I want to see Dell go and we're already starting, is it's not just about your company, right? I mean, the concept of ESG is this kind of broader ecosystem engagement. And one of the things that we're toying with at Dell, and I know other companies are as well, is how can you think about the work you do or the solutions you offer in engaging with your customer base or if you have a channel, your channel base and saying, how can we help you achieve your goals? Not just them saying, hey, Dell, what are you doing? We could say, we'll tell you everything we're doing, but we want to tell you what we're doing to help you also. So how can technology be used to create systems level change? How can we decarbonize our technology so when you buy it, it's actually lowering your carbon footprint too. So I do see that right now, a lot of the ESG and sustainability work is around structures and programs to meet regulatory or you know, requests for those organizations to get things right. But I think the next big wave is how we're going to collaborate together to innovate, to help each other accelerate. It'll be, you know, I don't think the disclosure piece is going to go away, but it'll be more around, I hope, disclosure and engagement to identify opportunities to accelerate, not just whether or not you're going to invest or not invest in that organization. So that's my hope and prayer. But I do see that as kind of a trend that we're starting to see right now. Paige, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've touched on or perhaps the information publicly available from Dell, what would be the best place for them to go? Absolutely. So on the Dell side, we actually have a kind of external facing website that is kind of all things ESG. Probably the easiest thing to do is just go on to the internet and type in Dell Technologies ESG or Dell Technologies Social Impact. And we have all kinds of plans and our public facing reports and highlights. As far as questions about the work that I do, my team does, or kind of this nexus between ethics and compliance and sustainability, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you and talk about it more. Well, Paige, I cannot think of a better way to have ended this podcast series with this episode. So I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. 
Tom, thank you. I mean, you are right at the forefront of all of this great work. You've been doing it a long time, and uh, I'm so delighted to be a part of it and honored. So thank you again for inviting me.